iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from the Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer and I'm Gabriel Marcotti and I thank you for joining us on this Nations League week. In the studio with us, it's the excellent Alan Smith, who will no doubt regale us uh, from old stories about your time with England and uh, with Arsenal, right? Um, Crystal Palace, Notts County, Leeds United, depending on which Alan Smith you're referring to. Exactly. You've never heard that one before, right? Every week. And down the line, somebody who does not have a bog standard name, it's Martin Ziegler. Good morning. Not everybody knows this, but not only is uh, Ziegler's last name not bog standard, neither is his first name because he spells it uh, with a Y. Now, that's an homage to the former Leeds goalkeeper, right? (laughs) Exactly. Funnily enough, who is a neighbor of mine? Oh, really? Nigel Martin, yeah. yeah. That's Lives awesome. Uh, That's... Me, Nigel Martin, Brian Dean, lots of very good footballers and me. Wow. I thought it was only Ollie Kay who lived in a bucolic uh, a village filled with football celebrities. Now, later on, we'll be talking about managerial friendships and perhaps the end of the Saturday 3 o'clock TV blackout. But there's one place to start. It's funny because it's true. <laughs> it's the Nations League and it's Germany who were beaten 3-0 by the Netherlands on Saturday night. It's the first time Germany have ever failed to score in three successive competitive games. And it wasn't exactly the happiest way for Joachim Love to mark the achievement of becoming Germany's longest serving manager. The former world champions, of course, finished bottom of their group at the World Cup in Russia. And Gab, you've written for The Times about the uh, current malaise for the German national team. When did this all start? Well, it's, it's odd because they sailed through World Cup qualifying, right? Ten wins out of ten. Um... And then obviously we know what happened at, at the World Cup. A lot of soul searching. There was Yogi Lev gave a gave a very impassioned defense explanation, but it's kind of continued, right? The the draw with France. They did take a lot of shots in that game, but you know France are the world champions. And now this against Holland, which again, to be fair to them, they went a goal down, a defensive blunder. They took a bunch of shots, and then at the end. They seem to sort of forget that goal difference might actually matter. And they said, ah, let's go and, and equalize here. And, uh, and they ended up conceding two late goals. So that 3-0 scoreline looks gaudier than it is. You know, the real difficulty you have, and I think this applies to every sport, when you've got a really successful team that's been a great team for a long time, and they're really the most difficult thing a manager does is to go and, and look at his players who stood by and who helped him win things and say, you're not what you were. Because I thought, some of the poorest uh, German players in that game were people like like Boateng, like Neuer, you know, people who've kind of been there all along throughout this period of dominance. 
Well, one of the big talking points surrounding the German national team has been Mesut Ozil. He was pictured with the Turkish president before the World Cup. This, of course, angered people in Germany. Uh, Ozil felt he was discriminated against uh, for it uh, and has since retired from international duty. So how much of that uh, has been perhaps a smokescreen for, for some of the larger issues, Gab, within the squad? Um, I mean, it certainly provides a big talking point and we talk about it you know, here also because there's all plays in England and, and there's there's broader issues of, of multiculturalism and whatnot. And it's definitely worth talking about through that lens. But I think it's also worth mentioning that Ozil at the World Cup was, was, was terrible, as were many of his teammates. Maybe in some ways he certainly felt singled out. He's saying, you know, I was bad, but I was no worse than everybody else. But it's not as if, if Ozil were, were, were back with the Germany team. I think that they'd, they'd do better. Again, lest we forget, remind yourselves, they lost 3-0 to a Holland side that have failed to qualify for the last two major tournaments. Uh, they have a goalkeeper who may play for Barcelona, but he never plays because he's on the bench. Funnily enough, behind a very good German goalkeeper, uh, they had uh, uh, two debutants in, in Dumfries and, and Bergwijn in the starting eleven. They had guys like Ryan Babel in the starting eleven. So it's not like all of a sudden uh, there's a wonderful Dutch generation that's just dominating everybody. I want to ask... Martin, since you're one-eighth German, as, uh, as, as we've established, um, this is something we see before and we've seen in other sports, right? That this idea of, of – it's really difficult to stay at, the, stay at the top and Löw has managed to do it for, for 13 – this is his 13th season as Germany manager. Some might even say his 15th season because he was kind of babysitting Jurgen Klinsmann for the first two years. This is something you've seen elsewhere. How do you get out of it? How do you handle it? Is this one of the most difficult things a coach can do? I think the most difficult thing a coach can do is, is, is staying at the top, definitely. And, and international football, winning the, the, the World Cup, it's probably especially difficult to do that because I think the players um, get a sort of sense of entitlement and it's quite easy to bring them back down to earth um, when they actually play against some, some good opposition. I do think the Ozil thing is actually quite significant, um, the fact he's not playing, because I think he really was like an integral part of the team. If he played badly, then the team played badly, which is probably what um, contributed to their World Cup problems. But actually, I still think he, is, he was this sort of the glue that held them together in many ways, and certainly creatively. Actually, I was also wondering whether, you know, does he sit at home watching this and feeling quite pleased that they've lost 3-0 without him? Because... I think I might in his position. But next up, of course, for Germany, it is the world champions, France, on Tuesday night. It's not getting any easier, Alan, for them. No, but I seem to remember the the opening game. Germany did have quite a few opportunities. Love is trying to adjust this approach to a more French style of play where they're defending quite rigidly and breaking, and it's more direct. Personally, I struggle to see... France, who France struggled in their friendly on Thursday night, needed two late goals to to come back. Um, I just struggle to see Germany finding any way past France, to be honest. I know we'd all be heartbroken. If Germany got, <laughs> You've got if a, Germany got there's a smile on your face. No, Cam. look, unless you are German or have some sort of German blood in you, or maybe if you live in Germany, it is weird and odd and unnatural to support Germany. They are at least, you know, speaking to me in Europe, 
they are the gold standard. The, the reason people like it, like seeing Germany lose, many people do, is A, many countries feel they have got a massive footballing rival. It's the only country in the world I can think of, right? If you ask the Dutch, who's your biggest football rival? Oh, it's Germany. If you ask England, who, you know, who is it? Well, of course it's Germany. If you ask Italy, oh, of course it's Germany, right? Um, that's a credit because I think ultimately, deep down, many of us wish we were like them. Many of us wish we had that, that, that confidence when we go on the pitch. You know, what always strikes you, and it's a fine line between confidence and arrogance, and I'll give you that. And when you lose over time, confidence turns into arrogance. But knowing what we know now about Ozil, it might seem strange, but the way they so seamlessly integrated um, a, a lot of uh, people of immigrant descent in their national team, the way they were successful, the way they started playing football that was easy on the eye, all of this stuff... I think a lot of us were, were basically envious of them because, you know, and I know France did the same thing, but then France also had Dominic and the rest of the, the, the freak show and, uh, and, and stuff like that. Whereas Germany, you know, France had their 2010. Germany haven't had that. Uh, so, yeah, I think this is why people draw pleasure from seeing Germany fail. It's because they've been the best. They've, they've been, been so the gold successful standard. for so Absolutely. long. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Within those parameters, do you think this is their 2010? It's just not as bad as it was for France eight years ago. Well, they also don't have a blithering smudge of a man named uh, uh, Raymond Dominic, you know, launching <laughs> absurd accusations and stuff like that. So, no, it's I, th- this is this is what Liv needs to decide. He needs to decide, like, you know, was there some kind of turning point? Do I move forward? They do have other players. Nicolas Soule, for example, he's an obvious guy who can start the back. Uh, Julian Brandt, uh, Heinrichs. You know, they're in a situation right now, for example, in... Josh Kimmich played in central midfield. Obviously, he's played in central midfield before for Bayern, but this year, you know, he's he's basically played exclusively right back at club level. And the fact that, for example, he feels the need to, to, to move him into central midfield, I think also speaks that right now he has gaps, not just at center forward, but he's got gaps and options. The fact that Hector keeps playing left back when I don't think Hector's very good uh, at all. You know, all these factors, I think, contribute. Um, when I said before about Germany's development as a movement, they've produced a tremendous amount of attacking midfielder, winger types are very good. We've even mentioned Leroy Sané, for example. But equally, in other spots on the pitch, for whatever reason, you know, they're still, they're still I think, desperately undermanned. It's probably complicated by him signing that new contract before the World Cup, but is there not an argument to be made where if you look at club managers where there's very much this emphasis on they last a certain amount of time take Guardiola in his previous jobs has been three seasons Klopp when he left Dortmund said you know I've had enough it's time for the next person to come in that obviously can surely be applied to international football and love has been there for more than 12 years now This season, with your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every goal from every game in the Premier League. Subscribe now. It's just £1 a month for a three-month trial. We're going to move on to a a subject that Martin, you wrote about last week for The Times. It concerns the traditional blanket ban in England on televised football at three o'clock on a Saturday. And it concerns the rights holders for La Liga in the UK. Martin, tell us what's been happening. Yes, yeah, so for the last um, two Saturdays, not, not including the international break, but the previous two before that, um, the La Liga matches have been able to be uh, watched by people in England on 11 Sports, who the, uh, the company which holds the, the rights to La Liga and Serie A matches. This is breaching the um, 3 p.m. Uh, live TV embargo, which has been in place for you know, the best part of 50 years. And... Um, 
they're unrepentant about it. They're going to keep on doing it. La Liga is supporting them. Um, and this is quite a big issue for the FA. Um, and they're also, UEFA is also involved in this. Martin, can you explain? I know the embargo's in place and it's been respected uh, until now. Can you explain whose embargo it actually is and who's responsible? I know on the, on the UEFA side, it's actually the other way around in the sense that UEFA basically say, you can do whatever you like, but you can ask us permission to have an embargo, which I think Montenegro have done and England have done and Scotland too. Is it a law? Is it a policy? What, what is it? Yeah, it's a, I think it's a policy. So this was brought in by the FA um, and it's run by the FA. That um, The former Burnley chairman, Bob Lord, in the 1960s was the man who sort of insisted that this was brought in to protect uh, attendances at English football matches. And and the FA also argue it's to protect the amateur players who play at three o'clock, that those games aren't affected by people staying in to watch matches on TV. And um, it's it's worked very, very well. um, And really up until the 1990s, there was never any opportunity to watch um, foreign matches live in England anyway, at Saturday at 3 o'clock. But since then, the broadcasters, uh, the, the domestic broadcasters, have uh, played ball with this and they're not showing anything. Sky and BT Sport have abided by this as well. So but 11 Sports have decided that it doesn't work. It's out of date. Um, no other country does it apart from Montenegro. And it's time to change. So they're, they're challenging it. And it's not a law, so I don't think it can be legally overturned by the FA. So it's basically something voluntary. It's, it's the FA saying, guys, help us out. Please abide by this policy, right? More importantly is whether UEFA can do anything about this. Because it is actually, if you look on their website, there's the Article 40 or, uh, 41 or 48, and then it, it it does state that these are enforced, but nowhere does it state that anyone has to abide by them. So it's a moot point, and I think it's probably going to be the end of the, certainly as far as the overseas transmissions or matches of overseas matches, that it's probably going to be the end of the of this taking place because I can't really see um, the FA winning the case. Natalie, I want to ask you because obviously people who listen to us know that you're a, a you're a Brentford fan, <laughs> and Brentford supposedly are one of those clubs because you're I mean you're doing very well now you're in the Championship historically mm. I think you've been mostly League One and League Two yeah yeah um, and these are the clubs who you know supposedly without the blackout wouldn't be drawing fans regular listeners know my view on this but growing up as a as a, as a little girl in, uh, in in West London. Would you have seen, like, watching Barcelona on television as a substitute for going down to Griffin no. Park? And- it's, it wouldn't, it's just not the same. I'd want to go to Griffin Park every time because that's my team. That's who I want to support. I do find it quite interesting, though, on a Tuesday night now, you can watch the 7.45 games in the championship. And I find that interesting, the fact that there is that opportunity now. You don't have to go to the game to watch your club if you happen to support a championship side. And that, in my mind, is slightly alarming because I think there possibly could be a drop in attendances for that reason. But equally, and, you know, forgive me for saying this, especially in the championship, you know, they the, the money that is generated from fans isn't, as much as it is from the from the television rights. So I think championship clubs can afford to not have the large attendances because they know they've got the fallback of the money. 
And also the, the football league rights deal changes. So it, from what, 90 million, they're going to get 120 million from my, I forget when it is, but in right. a few years' time. So it's going to go up a little bit more. I mean, I, for me personally, I think this whole argument might have applied in Bob Lord's time in the 1960s. I think today the idea that watching Barcelona on television is a substitute for going to support your local club is completely absurd and idiotic. Not to mention the other thing, Alan, that I'm an 11 Sports subscriber. I own a mobile phone, a smartphone with data. I can watch the Barcelona game on my phone while sitting in the stands at Griffin Park with Natalie. Uh, Actually, Natalie's in the hospitality. But still, um, so I don't, I mean, to me, this argument, I, I get the idea if you're broadcasting games where the attendance is going to be is going to be hurt, right? I'm a Brentford fan. Brentford's on television. It's raining outside. Oh, I think I'll just stay in, right? I get that. And I think there are safeguards that you can put into place, like only showing games in certain regions. The technology for that exists. Um, or only showing games that, that are sold out, right? At least United, I presume, sell out a lot of the time. So, you know, why should other Leeds fans be deprived the right of watching their team? Um, why should Leeds fans who can't afford tickets, for example, or Leeds fans who have to work on weekends, or Leeds fans who are too old or too young, they don't have anybody who take them to the stadium, why should they miss out, right? I get that argument. What's your take? I kind of look at, say, American sports, where the three big American sports have their own apps where you can access every game for a set fee per year. So if you want to pay, I think it's something like, between 150 and 200 pounds for the NBA season pass. You can watch every single game. Um, I believe if it's sort of geo-blocked, if the, by geography, the nearest team, you can't watch their home games because you're meant to watch it on the local broadcaster. But by comparison, the Premier League seems to be... In the case of the NFL, they're only going to be on the local broadcaster if they've sold out. Oh, really? Yeah, that's the whole point. Yeah, and it's the same with, with Major League Baseball. And I think in comparison, the Premier League... They put forward this sort of global idea where we've got so many fans in X country on the opposite side of the world, whereas the American sports seems far more advanced when it comes to broadcasting these deals. Maybe it's not worth quite as much money because the Premier League TV deals are so big. Even when it comes to highlights, all of those American sports, you can get instant clips, which you know you can get in the Times right. app, which is just a nice, a nice plug <laughs> oh, for the Premier well League games. But, um, yeah, why not for the Premier League? Is it because the TV deal, as it stands, is so big and the Premier League have decided that we're not going to make as much money from that Actually, approach? Siegs, you raised the point of highlights there. This is an age-old thing that I don't fully understand. So certain American sports and certain leagues uh, in, in, in football have basically decided, you know what, those highlights, YouTube, those little gifs that people make, this is a great marketing tool for us, right? We don't care if some, some pimply 15-year-old kid makes a cool highlight of Harry Kane. That helps promote our league, our brand. We're not going to enforce that. Now, the Premier League, I think, has taken a totally different angle that I'm told that they continuously go and take down highlights. They say, look, you know, we've sold these. What's your take on this? I think it's they're fighting a losing battle. Absolutely. That's what they're doing. Um... It's one of those things where they think they're protecting themselves, but actually I, I think it is now getting to the point where it's counterproductive to do that because you know anyone with any sort of technical ability can now find a, can now find a clip 
and it would be much, much better if, it, if they had a, an official site where they did that. Surely that would be much, much better. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The Chelsea manager, Maurizio Sarri, gave an interview in Italy over the weekend in which he described an exchange with Jurgen Klopp on the touchline during the top-of-the-table clash between Chelsea and Liverpool last month. Uh, paraphrase this since I saw the original? Please. It's kind of sweet. Go on. Right? So, as Sarri tells a story, he's like, I'm focused on the game and I'm delighted that they were winning 1-0. And then I look over and I had the sense that, like, Jurgen Klopp keeps looking at me and he has this big goofy smile on his face. <laughs> and I'm wondering, should I say something to him? And I kind of turn and I'm like, what's so funny? What are you looking at? What are you smiling at? And Klopp says, like, aren't you having fun? And I say, yeah, lots. It's a great game. Like, and Klopp just says, me too. And he keeps looking at the picture with, with, with a big grin on his face. And, and of course, and at the time, Liverpool were 1-0 were, were down. This is before Sturridge's goal. And Sadie talks about how, uh, you know, the atmosphere that was there, how much fun it was. And that's why at the end they all, you know, hugged it out with, uh, with this big sweet smile on their face. Ah, so they were just both enjoying the moment. Yeah, but you know what, Natalie? Not everybody likes the story Ooh. because, and Matthew Syed writes about this quite eloquently today. I tweeted this out and a bunch of people says, yeah, look, two losers. You know, Sir Alex would never be smiling and, and then poncing around like that when he's a goal down. And I don't know, maybe he wouldn't. But Syed raises the point, you know, do you have to be serious and grumpy if you're losing, Natalie? Well, no, I... I... I, I can did see. Dean Smith put his mean face on, or did he? Well, we Sorry, don't talk about. He's a splitter. We don't talk about him. Well, oh, yeah, you've gone off on him. <laughs> no, now. no, I haven't. No, come on. Um, no, but did he put his mean? When, when, when you guys were losing at home, did he put his mean, nasty face on? Bear in mind, he's on the opposite side of the pitch. It's not that easy to see his. You don't face. go with binoculars. <laughs> no, I'm not that stalkerish. Um, I I can understand why some fans might not like it because they want to see, you know, rather than if you're losing, they don't want to see your manager happy and enjoying this moment. If you're losing, they want to see the manager trying to encourage his players to go and get the equaliser. But 
I think every now and then it's quite nice to see that sort of side to a manager that kind of, it's just a different character, isn't it? And it's, oh gosh, it's not the end of the world, is it? It's not, I think it's quite nice. And if Smith was smiling and appreciating what Brentford were doing out there and you've still got plenty of time to get an equaliser or go on and win the game, then what's wrong with that? There is a big difference between losing and playing well and losing and playing poorly, doesn't yeah. there? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, Which absolutely. I think is the, is the key issue when it mm. comes to, to that scenario. Um, Was Martin O'Neill smiling on the touchline the other night? <laughs> um, no. Um, I, don't think many I can't remember were. the last time I've seen Martin O'Neill smiling. Actually, which says it probably says more about the Ireland's run of results in the past. To be fair, he shows up to work, and Roy Keane is there every day. So, well, apparently, Roy is the one who makes him laugh. His dark oh. sense of humour, which few people seem to fully appreciate. I actually think Roy Keane is really funny. Um, he just has a—it's an acquired taste, and if you get it, he's hilarious. If you don't, then you just think he's constantly angry and furious. Isn't Roy Keane from Cork? Yes, we. Um, and so are you. He, yeah. Are you so guys related or something? Like, are you trying to link the no, humor? No, no. Well, <laughs> he, they both have beards. They both, you know, he, they sound um, the same when they talk. Obviously, he's a little bit older, but he grew up about the house he grew up in is about hundred meters from the house I grew up in. Are you serious? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. From the know, same area. Yeah. Do you know Roy Keane's brother? Um, the scary he has. One? He's got a couple. Um, so the, the, the old story was that his brother, one of his brothers, Pat, who played for Rockmount, which was their schoolboy club, um, he was the better player, which is the classic sort of, you know, oh, you should have seen his brother mm. if, he was, if he was more committed. Um, and he chose to go down sort of a, I can't remember what he, what he works as exactly, but he played up until maybe the age of 40 um, at a sort of, a good local club level in in Cork. He, he won a couple of like national titles Cove at junior Ramblers. level. Um, no, Cove was the 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 League of Ireland club. So Rockmount was the the schoolboy club that they played with. Um, let's not go into the complexities of the Irish uh, domestic football uh, structure. <laughs> Wait, so did you did, did you ever see him? I mean, when you go home, did you did you did you do you see the Keane brothers around? You um, so they moved. Uh, Basically, Roy, maybe 10, 15 years ago, built a house for his parents um, in a uh, slightly nicer, more middle-class countryside kind of location rather than the, the city. Um, so well, Was it gritty think, where he grew up? Um, and where you grew up too, right? Well, or did it become gentrified after Roy moved out? It's kind of like, it's it's a working class area. I right. wouldn't say it's a, you know, it's not a... It's not a completely dog rough place to, to grow up it's quite a nice and pleasant place but by Irish standards it would be considered a working class area where like Ireland well, Dublin and Cork the two main cities have a very much structured in that the north side of both cities are historically considered the working class south side is considered the, the middle class area so in Cork the rugby clubs um, and the two cricket clubs were in the south side of the city where the north side of the city would be sort of Gaelic football hurling and and soccer um, it's it sort of changed as, as years have gone by but historically that's very much the sort of you're uh, listening to the Cork Sporting <laughs> Podcast brought to you by the Irish Examiner I was going to say, should, uh, we, yeah. should we get back to what we yeah. were talking about? <laughs> the fact that obviously uh, Klopp and Sari were very chummy uh, in that game between I, I, go on I, no I like to think of it in terms of Klopp is being rational. I mean, maybe I'm giving him way too much credit here. But I like to think of it in terms of we're playing really well. We're creating chances. Sometimes chances come for you. Sometimes chances don't fall for you. If I get angry and grumpy on the sidelines and start shouting and ranting and raving, 
is that going to increase the chances that my team will score? Will it have any effect on it whatsoever? Well, Klopp has a past history of sort of riling up supporters at Anfield when the team haven't been playing well. If you remember, there's there's been a couple of occasions. I think Champions. There was one Champions League game last season where I can't remember the the exact game, but he was turning behind the dugout and willing the fans to make more noise, like screaming at them. Um, which is quite interesting that he he trains it on on the supporters rather than his players. <laughs> well, on this occasion, of course, he was away from home, yeah. so. Yeah. No, but I'm just making a wider point that he's yeah. not he's not this sort of constantly happy-go-lucky type that you know he does have a nasty mm. side, and I think he has this sort of tendency to you've probably seen it on TV numerous occasions. If a report from the TV after the game, if they ask him a question, he doesn't like the wording. He's quite happy to to snap back. So to suggest that you know he and Sarri are just you know it's 100 percent positive all the time is you know sort of mistakes. As nice as that moment was a couple mm. of weeks back. But as you say, I think probably at the end of the day, Klopp was just admiring what his team were doing. That comes back onto him and this is what he's putting out there and, and they're playing really good football. They just weren't winning at the time. But did it all get a little bit too much um, last season in particular when you think about what happened with Antonio Conte and Jose Mourinho, for example? Yeah, the, but, the reverse. <laughs> yeah, but then that was in... So if we're speaking from sort of a, a media standpoint, that was far more interesting for far longer. Whereas this is sort of a, a nice moment. And, you know, we're not going to be talking about this in a couple of weeks, but Conte and Mourinho rumbled on. And so sort you of this, don't like it when they're chummy, Alan? <laughs> well, I think there's, there's a time and a place. And I think a couple of weeks back was the right time and place. The reverse fixture, fixture if it's a similar scenario, are they going to be as pally later in the season when there is more riding on it? I yeah, very I much doubt so. I don't want to say it's, you know, equally Saturday's not just like a big, you know, smiley, happy button either. He can get really, really angry. We saw it last season when they were head-to-head in a title fight. I just kind of think this was just a really f- great game. Mm-hmm. At the time, also, Saturday was, was winning. In the end, it was an equalizer, but it wasn't a bad result for, for Chelsea. It was obviously good for Liverpool. I mean, good for them. What bugs me is when people... Sort of, and this is one of the issues that that Matthew gets into so eloquently in the, in the Times today. Um, this idea that like, well, you're a loser. You know, these two are losers. I mean, you can only win based on your resources. And by the way, before anybody calls Jurgen Klopp a loser who can't win, how about we remember that he won two Bundesliga titles coaching a team other than Bayern Munich? If you call Klopp a loser because he's lost a bunch of finals since then with Liverpool, please bear that in mind. He's won. You know, he won the Bundesliga. He got to the Champions League final twice. You know, that that does not make you a loser. I think that's a classic social media reaction rather than something you know, a match-going fan would, would think, is it not? Is it something a fellow Premier League manager might say, maybe while rattling off all the titles that he's won um, and calling for well, respect? He's unique. Talking, though, of losers... We uh, focus on our predictions and the results. Do we have to? I think so. If you're not aware of what we're doing, it's our weekly predictions game. Uh, and before we start, I feel we need to remind people that you're awarded a point for guessing a result correctly and then three points for guessing the scoreline correctly. So we began on Friday night where I correctly predicted a draw between Croatia and England. Gab, you went for an England win. I have to admit, very unlucky because... Uh, England had chances in that one. Yes, and I really, that that should count as a victory. No, it doesn't. All right, whatever. (laughs) 
Natalie went for a Germany win away to Holland. Come on now, oh Natalie. God. What was I thinking? I, I had I had some faith in, uh, in my buddy Ronald Koeman. Uh, oh, hang on. Have you got draw. a hotline to Ronald Koeman then? I don't have a hotline, but <laughs> I thought they were going to get a draw. Instead, Germans took one hell of a beating, 3-0. Mm. Made it all worthwhile. And on Sunday night, Natalie, you thought Poland and Italy would draw. I mean, it was going well for me. Well, no, because Poland were getting battered. I know, simply... but in terms of the scoreline, it was going well. Yeah, okay, fine. But obviously, <laughs> Italy won, but I think it was the very least we deserved. Honestly, I thought that was... Maybe it's a reflection on the fact maybe they weren't that great, but Italy have been so turgid for the last two years that I think you have to go way back, maybe to, to, to the Euros and the Spain game, maybe even further back, maybe all the way back to Euro 2012 and, and the win over Germany in the semifinal to find the last time Italy played this well. Oh, okay. That's, That's how some, bad we've been. Some time ago. Uh, then into the uh, Football League. Unlike me, Gab had faith in Carl Robinson's Oxford to beat Plymouth, which meant at this stage you had two points and I had one. Right, I was winning. Uh-huh. But here is the crucial part, Gab. We both went for Tranmere to beat Macclesfield in League Two, but I was the one that went for the exact scoreline, the 1-0 win at uh, Prenton Park, for which I get three points, meaning Gab finishes on three points and I finish on four. So what does that mean, Gab, overall? Well, after eight weeks of doing this, uh, we are finally balanced. It's Marcotti mm. four, Sawyer four. Um, looks like uh, you've come back from 4-1 down. I've done really well. But there's a long, long way to go. <laughs> really long way. Uh, that is it for now. Many thanks to our guests today, Martin Ziegler and Alan Smith. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times as well. Yes, you get that too. To enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It'll cost you just £1 a month for a three-month trial. Search a Times subscription for more information. We'll be back on Thursday when the Premier League returns with Manchester United's trip to unbeaten Chelsea. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.